I got this accounting career. I got an MBA now. I got a CPA license. The world's your oyster. What do you want to do? And I decided to go into federal law enforcement. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this show. Well, for today's show, we have another guest that spent a substantial portion of their career with the Internal Revenue Service. 20 years, as a matter of fact. However, this guest is different from the others we've had on the show in that Robert Norlander, our guest for today, worked in the Criminal Investigations Unit. Those are the special agents that carry guns and investigate criminal activity, not simply late filing or or late payment situations, but international cases, cases of illegal gambling, and sometimes even far more worse and serious offenses that ultimately still have a financial component as well. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. And on top of it all, listen into the very end where we talk about Robert's own podcast because he has a podcast and If you enjoy this episode, you're certainly going to want to look up Robert's own show because you'll enjoy that as well. If you do learn something from this episode, please share your thoughts on the show with a friend or if you're a student still in college, even with a professor. We've got some great comments from people once they find the show, particularly professors and college students. And so the more we can spread the word, the better. And I really appreciate you helping with that if you can. And as always, if there's anything that I personally can do for you in your own career or for accounting organizations that you're involved in, please reach out to me as well. I'm very findable on LinkedIn. Just shoot me a message there and I'll respond right back. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with today's guest. You're really going to enjoy this interview. Here's Robert Norlander. Well, hello, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be with you. Wonderful. This will be fun for sure. Well, for the audience, if you have been listening to the show for a while, a long while actually, then you've heard a couple other guests from the IRS come on the program, but I've only had two so far in well over 200 episodes now. So honestly, that's just barely scratching the surface given that we're a show about accounting careers. Today, we have Robert Norlander joining us, and Robert spent over 20 years with the Internal Revenue Service before just recently starting his own consulting practice. However, Robert's background is a little different than our previous guest in that he was in the federal criminal investigations area. So this is definitely going to be a different conversation. We're not going to be talking about missing filing deadlines or late payments. This will definitely be some different subject matter. Well, Robert, before we get to the present time, let's make sure we cover your overall journey because that's really important to our audience as well. What led you to decide to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? My father was an accountant and a CPA when I was growing up, and he was also self-employed. So I got a chance to see it from that point of view of being a business owner. So I'd help my dad every now and then input the books and records, reconcile through the compilations. And one of the things that he taught me was you can take accounting and go anywhere around the world and get a job. And that's what he told me. So it's either a nurse or you can become an accountant. And I'm like, eh, I really don't know. But being in college, you really don't know what you want to do for a living. And being a teenager, I wanted to be an FBI agent because FBI has two tracks at that time. One was accounting, one was law. 
So I decided, hey, if I want to go into law enforcement, I can always use accounting and use it, but I can also be a CPA. I can go anywhere around the world and earn a living using this degree. So I went ahead and got my degree, bachelor's degree in accounting. Once I started my first year, I was hooked. I enjoyed principles. I thoroughly enjoyed intermediate. I was kind of a nerd that way and really enjoyed that aspect of it. It was all coming together for me, especially when I was working a little bit for my father at the time when I was a teenager. So that's the reason why I started my accounting career and then ultimately later on got my CPA license. Okay. We definitely have something in common then. My father was a CPA and that's how I got started as well. I'm curious. I see you worked for a quote, small public accounting firm right out of college and then while getting your master's. Was that your father's firm? It was in the early 90s. If you go way back there, about 30 years ago, there was a recession, a pretty deep Uh recession. And so accounting firms were really hiring. So my father came back and said, listen, son, if you want to, you're about ready to get married. You can start here for a little while and just get your feet wet and we've got some work for you to do. And just start here and just help me out. And I did it for seven or eight years, maybe nine years, something like that. But ultimately did everything. I did the compilations, the reviews, did some audits. I helped out with the IRS tax resolution problems. We did the payroll taxes. We're the jack of all trades, right? And so it was a great experience starting with a small firm because I was no longer in a niche, but you learned a little bit of everything. Some ways, the hard way. In some ways, are easy ways, of course. But you were learning, and you get to deal with the clients one-on-one. It was you picking the stuff up, you taking it back to them, you explaining to them what you need, because you know very good and well when the client brings you stuff, they don't bring you everything. You got to go back to them and say, I'm missing this and missing that. And you learn a little about customer service as well. So that's what I did was start in a small accounting firm with my father, and he gave me a, a excellent step or excellent experience in dealing with the small accounting firm world. Okay. I'm curious, is that where you started getting interested in the IRS from that experience working with clients and their issues, or did that come later? Actually, no. Originally, I wanted to be a police officer, and that's what I wanted to do. And hence, the, initially, I wanted to be an FBI agent because, you know, they're cool, right? Yeah. Uh, they got all the TV shows. But when I graduated from college, I was only 20. I started high school early, started college early, and you couldn't become a police officer until you're 20, past 21. So I had a, a year or two to do something other than be a police officer. And once I got into the accounting world, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. But then I asked myself, do I really want to be directing traffic at two o'clock in the morning when it's sleeting outside with a CPA license? And I was like, no, I didn't really want to be that. So during this time I was in the small accounting firm, I also ran for local politics and actually won. So I was the youngest city councilman in North Carolina. And so I had a four-year stint to where I was in this town, uh, the small town I was growing up in. I was a city councilman there. So I really couldn't go anywhere. So being a police officer was kind of not in the cards. And I really started to enjoy law enforcement. And one of the things I had to do as a small, as a city councilman is I was responsible for a committee that oversaw the public safety. And the police officers and the captains and those chiefs would say, you really don't know what's out there until you do it right along with us. I say, sure, I'd ride along with you guys. So I would literally get in the cop car with another patrol officer and I would ride around and I beat at the places that I represent and really thoroughly enjoyed 
that aspect of cops and robbers and law enforcement, that type of thing. Well, I lost re-election. So once I lost re-election, what do I want to do now? I now have this, I'm in my late 20s. What I want to do, I got this accounting career. I got an MBA now. I got a CPA license. The world's your oyster. What do you want to do? And I decided to go into federal law enforcement. And when you go into federal law enforcement, you apply to everywhere. DEA, Secret Service, FBI, ATF. I did not know IRS even had a criminal investigation division until I saw a link of federal law enforcement agencies and IRS is one of them. Well, I looked at the IRS one and I thought, wow, accounting and law enforcement, that's me. That is me right there. Well, you just don't apply one day and get an interview the next. So it takes about two years before you go through the process. So in the meantime, I decided to go teach at a university, accounting and tax and intermediate those type of courses. And during that period of time, I was going through the process of the FBI, Secret Service, and the IRS. And ultimately, the IRS was the first one to, to pick me up. So two years after teaching, I finally went ahead and, and got the approval to go to the academy. Wow. Yeah, I knew it took a long time to get on with the FBI. And I was assuming it might with the IRS, but I, I didn't realize. Yeah, because you, you taught for almost two years. So. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it was great experience. I mean, you know, you're a CPA and an MBA, and I'm teaching you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and I'm 28 at the time, I think, something like that. So you're teaching them, and you bring a lot of life experience because as part of a small accounting firm, I had tons of stories. And the kids, I call them kids. I mean, they were inner, you know, young adults. They loved stories about what this client did and what that client did and how this client was kind of shady. They love those stories. So I could always bring those stories in. I had seven or eight years experience of bringing stories into the classroom and they thoroughly enjoyed it. Sure. Yeah. That makes the classes that much more interesting for sure. Yeah. So what role did you have when you started at the IRS? When I applied, it's called a criminal investigator. The series is called GS-1811. And what those are are gun toters. It's the same thing as Secret Service or FBI or DEA. You see these guys with police. They're wearing the raid jackets. They got the cool badges, the cool uniforms, and they're federal agents. Well, those are called 1811s, but they're working for their particular agency. I instead work for the IRS. And working for the IRS was a great marriage for law enforcement and accounting for me because I was able to take my experience and apply it to a white-collar crimes. The IRS only hires, for law enforcement purposes, those individuals who have an accounting background. So automatically in the classroom, you already have a few CPAs, a lot of revenue agents or revenue officers, people who already been with the IRS, or individuals who just maybe have bookkeeping experience. But the point being is they have to have a minimum requirement of so many hours of accounting just to be hired as a, what they call a special agent, same thing as a criminal investigator. So that's what I ended up doing was getting a job as a special agent. And that, in turn, I took well, the classes were six months. So the first half of that class, about 13 weeks, was going through a criminal investigator training program, which is what the U.S. Marshals go through, which is what Secret Service goes through. Almost every agency goes through the same type of program. So every federal agent out there carrying a gun has the same basic level of law enforcement education. After that 13 weeks, another 13 weeks is what we call special agent training. 
which is the IRS version. So you learn about IRS policies, you learn about the IRS rules, you learn about the statutes that you'll be that you'll be dealing with. Secret Service does, does protection and counterfeiting. We didn't learn about that. We learned about tax crimes. We learned about money laundering. We learned about how to investigate a crime and the steps it takes and how to get access from the IRS databases, those types of things. And then after that, after six months of that full training, then you go to your, they call postal duty, your city, your office, and then you start working under the direction of another seasoned agent called your on-the-job instructor. Those guys kind of like help you, tell you where the, where the courtroom is at, where the bathrooms are at, those types of things, and kind of give you guidance to kind of knock off that academy dust off your shoulders and say, yeah, you're in the real world now. This, here's, here's how you do it. So that's what I end up doing with the IRS. Wow. So I really don't know the answer to this because I could see it going both ways. I have no idea. How do you spend your time as a special agent carrying a gun in the criminal investigations area? Are you in the office like 95% of the time and just occasionally going out to do some interviews or something? Or are you out of the office most of the time? Are you peering at spreadsheets? What do you do as a special agent? You know, it was a very, very fulfilling career for 20 years. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And every day was different. It's Mark, it's like being self-employed. As long as your plate was full, you were allowed to do what you wanted to do in your cases as long as they were moving at an appropriate speed. I'll give an example. Most of the time as a special agent, interviewing somebody, reviewing a bank spread, or writing a report, that's really all you're doing. Where did the money come from? Where did the money go to? Who can testify what the money was for, right? You compare it to a tax return or some other type of uh, document, and then you write a report saying, this is what happened, this is what's on the return, there's a big difference here, here's the reason why we think they committed a crime, and then you write the report up. So really the three main things we do is interview people, do a bank spread, we call it bank spread, find out where the money came from, where the money went to, and then write a report about it. That being said, the crimes for the IRS are almost all historical. What happened five years ago? What happened three years ago? It's not like a drug deal where I have to be out there right now, okay? I have to be there to see it and be part of it. So it's because it's the type of cases that we work are historical, you had the chance of really dictating your day. You had to put in 10-hour days. But if it's raining outside, I don't want to go out and do an interview. You know, it's raining outside. I'm going to do a break spread. We'll do the interview tomorrow because most of our interviews were cold calls. It's me knocking on the door going, hey, I need to speak to you. No, you didn't expect me to be here. Yes, I'm here. Can you talk to me right now type thing, right? Especially on the subject inter- initial subject interview. That's what we would do. But some things like CPAs. CPAs don't like you just knocking on their door saying, hey, I'm here, right? Especially during tax season. So in those situations, we would, you know, I would give a call going, hey, I'm agent so-and-so. I need to speak to you. I can fax you over some information. When's a good time to come by and see you? And they'll say, oh, you know, come by next week. And then you get an appointment, right? But for the most part, you were dictating your day about how you wanted to spend it. And it was a great job. Some people would laugh and say it was the best part-time job they ever had. So. (laughs) (laughs) I can see how that would be appealing because you're making a difference. You're catching the bad guy, so to speak, but you don't have that stress of if you're one day late, (laughs) you know, because the crime isn't happening now. It happened in the past. And so actually it pays to be even more thorough. I can see how that would appeal to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. The deadlines were agency created. Like we want this thing done by the end of the month. 
okay, fine. That means I got 30 days to do it. It's never like, oh, if you don't get this done by the 15th or if I had this filed by the 31st, your clients will get penalized or you'll get penalized. It never happens that way. Now, there are certain hard deadlines, court cases, where a judge says, you will be here by 11 o'clock for this time. Okay, we'll be there at 11 o'clock. There's no debate about that, the judge has said. But for the most part, other than that, it was it's very flexible. Okay. Okay. Well, tell us about some of the more memorable cases that you worked on, because 20 years is a long time. So <laughs> what were some of the more memorable cases? The one thing that I thoroughly enjoyed about this career was it was like playing chess. The IRS has sole jurisdiction in tax crimes. The FBI can't do it. Secret Service can't do it. Only the IRS has sole jurisdiction in tax crimes. So we had to go out and go find our cases. So whatever we wanted to find, we could keep and we could put it on our plate. As long as our plate was full, we could work on it. So I had a chance to really do some interesting things. Like one case I had is I went to the local county and I said, local county or counties, actually, give me all the houses that are purchased over a million dollars. Now, in North Carolina, a million dollar house is pretty impressive. And I get a full listing of all the houses that were purchased over the last four years, over a million dollars. And then I took that information, I compared it to a tax insurance. I give it to the support staff and say, okay, uh, with my manager's approval, I got a list, pull all the tax returns for all these people, and just give me what the income was for the last two or three years. And then I'd sort it from least to most, right? So the person who bought a million dollar house who had zero income, let's call it a clue. You can't live in a million dollar house and have zero income. It's impossible or very, very, very extremely rare. So I was just fish. That's what it's called. I used to call it fishing. And I found a good case where a lady was a failure to file and she gave the bank one tax return, gave a scholarship committee to put her kids in private school another tax return, and but yet get the IRS nothing. So that was a that was a pretty interesting case. I did have cases, for example, where there was some illegal gambling across state lines, and the individual took the money, the proceeds, and made a lot of money doing it, and turned around and invested it in real estate. When I say real estate, I mean beachfront real estate. When I say beachfront, I'm talking about literally on the beach. Two million dollars of pop houses, and he had fifteen or twenty houses, and he wanted that was his that was going to be his his retirement plan. Was, was that. I've had international cases touch five continents, actually. I've had one case in particular, and that was even of a missing child, that ultimately we did a white collar investigation on the adopted parents, and ultimately that was a successful conclusion as well. So I've had a, quite a few interesting ones. I can't go into details about a lot of them because of disclosure issues, but some of them I could. Hmm. Sure, sure. So I understand how home sales versus income and illegal gambling can be IRS cases. How does a missing child case end up in the IRS? It looks like that would be FBI or police. Oh, it's a good question. Well, part of the job as a criminal investigator is to find your own cases. And if you don't find a case, your manager will give you one. It's probably going to be a dog. Let's just face it. Okay. Whatever gets put on your plate by somebody, it's probably not going to be as good. So I had a good relationship in this small community other federal prosecutors. And I would just go up and down the hallways, just talk to people. Say, hey, got any good great cases? Any good white collar cases, drug deals, whatever else it is? Because we're in a job of crimes against greed. Greed happens, usually there's a money aspect, and there's a money aspect that probably is a purview either white collar or tax crimes. Well, I had a case where I was just talking to a prosecutor, and his job was to do the child exploitation type things, cases, the heinous crimes against kids and that type of thing. 
And I just was just to be friends with him. And I said, hey, you know, what's going on? He goes, hey, I'm working on this case. It's about this missing kid called Erica Parsons. I was like, oh, yeah, I heard about that in the paper. And that was the bureau and the state and locals were looking for this child that was, missus, that was missing suspiciously for 18 months before it was even reported. And I looked at him. I said, you know, I said, that type of thing is probably... Let's just face it, it probably was a situation where they thought the parents probably did something to the child and ultimately the child died. I said, there's probably some type of white collar aspect of this because people don't commit crimes in vacuums. If you're committing crime here, you're probably committing crime there and there and there, A, B, C, and D. They're probably committing crimes all over the place. And the issue was that the state was not going to prosecute the adopted parents because there was no body. They couldn't find the missing kid. You can't have a a murder charge without without a body. They were not going to do that. So he said, I, he said I'm, we're at a loss. I said, well, let's just do a white collar crime. He goes, really? I said, yeah, because if you use a person's identity unlawfully, unlawfully, whether or not they allow you to do it is a different story altogether, but unlawfully, that's considered identity theft. And if you use that identity on a tax return, okay, that is a mandatory two years for every time you use that identity. It's to help stop identity theft in society. And I told the federal prosecutor, his name was Ramaswamy. I said, if the adopted parents use this child's name unlawfully on a tax return as a dependent, that is a mandatory two years. Okay, so you can at least get two years out of this, even though the loss is very, 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 very small. In addition, if they file a state tax return using a wire electronically, that's also another two years for each identity. So. Most states have a federal and state tax return, right? So that was two years for the federal, two years for state. You could probably get four years just on, on identity theft alone if it's there. And he said, I like it. And so in this, this situation, we went ahead and used the identity of this child that they were claiming to have this child in their house when the child was not in their house. And I use a child very loosely. Actually, he was a teenager, 13 years old at the time. And we were able to use those white-collar statutes in order to prosecute them for trying to get like food stamps and adoption assistance and tax credits. It's about a $30,000 loss by the time it's all said and done, really small in the federal world. But we actually prosecuted these two parents for using identities of this missing child as a prerequisite for the crimes. Ultimately, with a goal of trying to figure out where the child was at. And at the end of the day, one parent went to trial, was found guilty. Another parent pled guilty. And we were allowed to bring up in sentencing every bad thing that happened to this child, number one, the child abuse, but also the other white-collar crimes that were also done on a small scale, by the way, like not selling things on eBay. They, they, they sell a computer, but don't turn it in. That, those type of small little pity things. And we were allowed to show that these individuals probably killed their own adopted child, more than likely. And the judge saw right through what we were doing and gave them eight years and 10 years, which is unbelievable for a $30,000 loss. Unbelievable. And stated out in open court, you did something with this child and it's eight years and 10 years. Well, the ultimate goal was to find where this child was at. And after about a year, the adopted dad broke down and showed the federal government, where state and local government as well, where he buried a child and the circumstances he did. And the state then later on came in and said, oh, we have a body. Now they charge him with murder. And one of them is doing life and the other one's doing, I think, 20 or 30 years after the federal sentence is over. So that type of case was just 
it's sad in a lot of ways because it's a missing teenager, but we did have a chance to give justice to this teenager, give her a proper burial. We couldn't have done that without using white collar crimes in order to put them in prison to begin with. And it was it was a great case. Erica got her proper burial. Her biological mom got closure. The whole society in general and where she lived in got closure. And it was a very good win for uh, for the good guys. Wow. Yeah, I mean, all of us accountants have heard of serious criminals being brought to justice. I think Al Capone (laughs) is a big story, but through the financial system, that was the way we could get them. So, wow, that's making a huge difference through an avenue I wouldn't have thought of. That's amazing. Wow. This brings up another topic. What do you feel is one of the more challenging aspects of working for the service? Or, or what do you think that people from the outside you would find would find challenging about it? Because there, there's several things I heard in there. So yeah, what, what comes to mind in that aspect? If I'm thinking about going to work for the IRS, what are some of the challenges that I may not realize looking in from the outside? Are you talking about from the criminal standpoint or the civil standpoint? Well, the criminal standpoint, yeah. Because that, that's okay. where your time was spent. Good point. Right. From the criminal standpoint, the burden of proof is different for us than it is for the revenue agent. A revenue agent can come in and say, excuse me, but do you have a receipt for that $5 deduction that you took off for giving stuff to Goodwill? The burden of proof is on you to prove what you did or didn't do. On the criminal side, the burden of proof is on the government to prove things. I'll give you an example. Let's assume that you have a deduction for going out, or you took a deduction to go to Disney World, okay? You took the whole family and you went to Disney World, it was $5,000, and you deducted this travel, right, on your business. Revenue agent can say, prove to me I was a business, and you probably couldn't. Criminal investigators say, say, proved, we have to prove that it wasn't business, okay? Because the burden of proof in court is beyond a reasonable doubt, and the burden of proof is on the government to prove that it wasn't business. So those types of things, we just can't willy-nilly show up in court and say, oh, well, you know, that McDonald's expense was personal. Well, we're going to be able to prove that it wasn't a business expense. I mean, how do you do that? So a lot of times you're trying to prove the negative, which is more difficult. So we have to show it through circumstantial evidence, like a bunch of pictures, somebody was there with them, there wasn't a convention going on. Those types of things, we have to prove the negative. And so when it comes to a federal criminal investigator, we have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. While the civil side does not have to prove anything, you have to prove it to the civil side what it's not and what it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And you really have to develop your investigation skills <laughs> more so, I, I would think, on that side. Yeah. Right. And you have to understand what's good and what's bad, what's going to fly, what's not going to fly. Go in front of a jury and say, put him in jail because he forgot the deadline is not going to fly. There's no willfulness there. There's no reason to put someone in prison there. Now go in there and say, for the last 10 years, they haven't filed a tax return, and they also make a million dollars a year. Now you got something that's worthy of putting someone in prison over. So we do things multiple years we'll look at. We just don't look at one year. Nor one mistake. A mistake is not going to put you in prison. It's the willful, the intention to evade that tax or not file a tax return becomes the issue then. Okay. Okay. 
Well, I want to make sure I leave enough room for the questions I ask at the end of every show. And there's a few other things I want to cover. And in in all fairness, I mean, I know you're not with the IRS anymore and you've started your own practice. So I do want to hear about that. I'm assuming you took retirement from the IRS. Is that what happened? Or did you just have the burning desire to start a firm? After 20 years, a federal law enforcement officer can retire after the age of 50. It's a good pension plan. It's a decent pension plan. And you get about a third of your salary, approximately. And I started doing the math, started crunching it, and thought, you know, it doesn't really pay to stay. What do I want to do with my life? I turned 50. The day after I turned 50, I'm eligible for full benefits. Do I want to stick around and do this for another 20, you know, another seven years? Because at the end, at 57, you will be fired. It's mandatory. There are no federal law enforcement officers after the age of 57 unless you get some type of weird exemption. So for the most part, unless you're some very, very important person, which I'm not, you will turn in your gun and badge. So at age 50, what do I want to do? I have another what, maybe 20 years left of productivity. What I want to do, if money was no longer an option, would I stick around? No, I've had my fun for 20 years. I enjoyed it. I don't regret it. But do I get a chance to become that father I wanted to be? I have a daughter. she got soccer games. She's got other things that, that I want to be part of her life. It's a little less stressful. So I decided to go ahead and start my own forensic accounting and tax resolution firm. I jokingly will say that my Broadway career is over with and my dancing career is over with at age 50. So therefore, forensic accounting is my second option here. <laughs> but it's the only skill that I have is forensic accounting and taxes. So I was like, you know, I can earn a, a self-employment income and enjoy it and work kind of part-time, enjoy it, dictate what kind of clients I want, the billing, how I want to do things. And I don't regret it. I thoroughly enjoyed working with clients, working with other attorneys, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. That's the reason why I started a forensic accounting firm was 20 years of the government was long enough. There's pros and cons of working for the government. And if money was no longer an issue, would I want to stick around? Nah, let's try something else. Let's sure. do a new chapter in life. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that may, well, yeah, you've lived in a fairly structured environment for a while. And (laughs) now you're able to dictate what your schedule is going to be. So yeah, yeah, that's wow. I'm happy for you. That's awesome to be able to do that. You have your own podcast as well. It's fairly new, I think. Tell us about your show. I started the Fraud Fighter podcast. The podcast is about fraud in forensic accounting and money laundering. I did not know, honestly, Mark, what people with my skill set did in the private sector. I just didn't know. As a criminal investigator for the IRS, I'd sit across the table with the prosecutor, and across the other side of the table would be the defendant and his lawyer. I didn't see anybody with my skill set, with my expertise, helping that side of the table. I just didn't see it. So for the most part, the defense had to take what I say as gospel. The courts had to say what I had to say as gospel because I was the expert in the room. No one else knew the case like as much as I did. And so I did not know what people with my skill set did in the private sector. And I talked to people and said, well, you can make a good income doing that. I'm like, well, show me the guy who's writing out the checks or show me the person who's actually doing the job because I don't see them. I don't know them. I don't see them in a federal court. I don't see it at all. So I started a podcast as my way of trying to figure out what's my skill set do in the private sector. And so I started interviewing people who either were issuing the credentials that say that you're a good friend's accountant, people who are writing out the checks, like the attorneys, or people who are actually doing the job. 
And those were my three things that I was doing. And before that, I will give you kudos, Mark, to your podcast. I was looking at what other podcasts were out there regarding accounting. I didn't see hardly anything regarding forensic accounting that I thought was interesting. And I used your podcast is cherry picking some things here, some things there. And I enjoyed your podcast and some of the episodes that you had. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll take a little bit from Mark Golden's podcast, take a little bit of here from this podcast, and I'll just start my own. And Mark, you probably know, know this like anything else. It took me two years to finally get the goal, the, the, <laughs> the, the courage to even press record. I mean, I had the idea in my head for two years and finally did it. And of course, you know, the first episode stinks. That's thinking because of the content. It's a great episode as a, for the person. It's just that I'm trying to figure out what I am as a podcast host, right? You've got to figure out your way of doing things, the music and everything else, how you want to do things. And then slowly but surely, I started learning, learning more and learning more. And after about six or seven months of this, I was like, you know, hey, I can actually do forensic accounting. What I do for the IRS, I can do it in the private sector and make a decent living doing it. And it kind of gave me the courage as well as the experience and the expertise. I was able to find good guests that could point me in the right direction of how to market yourself as a forensic accountant. Because not anybody knows what a forensic accountant does. It's not just something at the tip of people's tongues, what, what we do. So anyways, it was a great way of me learning. And I thoroughly enjoy it. And I get to meet people like you and other people on the on various podcasts and interview great guests. That's the reason why I started the Fraud Fighter podcast. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for the kind words. I know you had mentioned that before we started recording. I didn't realize it was specifically the forensic episodes that attracted your attention. But yeah, that makes sense for sure. Thank you. People don't realize this. I mean, obviously, it takes quite a bit of work to put in a podcast. It's an investment of time and not too much money, but definitely a lot of time. But one of the biggest paybacks is what you get to learn as the host, because you're talking to all these experts. I get to talk to all these experts like you, and, and I pick up something from every show. I mean, it just it makes me that much better a professional doing my daily work as well. So, yeah, I can definitely isn't, isn't that really true? I've had people actually contact me going, Robert, what would you recommend? I want to be in the be in the same job as you or same industry you do. All I can tell you is listen to episode one through 30. I mean, because I'm learning the same thing. I had nothing else to add other than what people, my guests are already adding. And believe me, it works. I take my guests' expertise. One of them said, get your CPE or CFE, excuse me. One of them said, get your CFE, Certified Fraud Examiner. And I looked at him and I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. Why do I need the CFE? And he flat out told me, you need it because it looks good on paper and the courts want it if you want to become a forensic examiner and be paid by the courts. Well, who am I to disagree with that? He's absolutely right. I was like, okay, well, it's a thousand bucks, a little bit of training, a couple hours of doing the work, studying, make sure I got all everything I, I need to know, paid the test, voila, you're a CFE. But it adds extra credentials because it's important to the court system. I would have never known that unless I had the podcast. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing what you learn from your guest. Definitely. Yep. Well, I've got three questions I end every episode with, so we probably better get to those. The first one's usually the easier one for guests. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? I had to go back to the Erica Parsons case. It was something that hit me not only intellectually, but emotionally, being a father of a teenager Writing the wrong of society, seeing what bad happened, and be able to use your accounting skills to help promote justice was, to me, the cherry on top of my Sunday on that career. I haven't found anything else yet that met 
that level of satisfaction, honestly. I've had some great, great cases that have great stories, but when it comes to laying your head on the pillow, knowing you did the right thing, and it wasn't just the victim being the government, I mean, the big, bad government being a victim, not paying taxes toward the government. It was actually a 13-year-old child got some justice, and her parents got justice. That, to me, was the crowning moment of my career, honestly. Sure. Yeah. It would surprise me if you, if you didn't bring that one up. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, second question, or really more of a request, tell us about a lesson that you've learned the hard way. And the more you can tell us about the situation, the better, because that's how me and the audience, <laughs> you'll learn from these things. The lessons I learned the hard way. There is an African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go farther, go with others. And for many times in my career, I was the Lone Ranger. I went out there. I did it. Did it my own. Got some great cases done. But in hindsight, if I took the team approach and realized everybody has strengths and weaknesses, I probably would have been a better agent in that situation. There are times where people are not as fast or what I consider is more as dedicated as I would be. And I took it as lack of passion and probably should have realized that they probably have better ways of handling things than I did. I'll give you an example. There are some people out in this world that did an excellent job at five o'clock turning their phone off and don't think about work. I'm not that person. I think about work. I work until seven o'clock. Sometimes if need be, I work till midnight because they had to get done. And those types of situations, I now, looking back, envy the person who can just turn the phone off and say, okay, that's done. While me, I'll be sitting there slaving away, trying to get things done. And they get frustrated because things were not moving at the speed that I wanted to move. And I've had to learn that it's okay to turn it off. There always will be work tomorrow. And the more I learned that, especially being self-employed now, I am now even learning that today is to turn things off and say, you know what, I'm done for today. I'm not thinking about accounting or friends accounting or my client. I'm going to do something and be the father I need to be or the, or the husband I need to be or the son I need to be or the, the friend I need to be. So those types of things I wish I learned earlier. <laughs> that is very important because when you become self-employed, there is always more that you could do. You literally could work 24 hours a day and still not get everything done that you'd like. And so that's, that's a very important skill to learn or a very important thought process for sure. Thank you for passing that on. Definitely. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? You're going to be dead a lot longer than you will be alive. So whatever you do, better be worthy of your time. And I'm a Christian. I am apologetic about my belief system and realize that I only have, on average, maybe 70 or 80 years on this earth. It could be a lot shorter. And whatever I do has to be for an eternal perspective as well as for my child's perspective because they're going to be here a lot longer than I will be left over. And so the things that I do for people, the things I do for God, need to be have an eternal focus on it, not just a temporal focus to it. Yeah, it's amazing how you'll make different decisions when you think of the long term instead of just not this moment. So thank you. Thank you for passing it on. That is really good advice. Well, I think most of the listeners to this show would be interested in at least some of the episodes, if not all the episodes that you have on your Fraud Fire podcast. So what's the best way to find that? Do you have a website for it yet or is it simply through the app? What's the best way to find it? 
There are a couple ways. The Fraud Fighter podcast is on every major podcast platform, whether it be Audible, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Apple. It's, it's all there. Or you can go to the fraudfighterpodcast.com. It'll point you to the link as well as where they're located at. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Robert, for taking the time to tell your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. I do appreciate your podcast, and it's a feat to have 200, and congratulations to having over 200 podcast episodes. (laughs) No problem. Thank you very much. Well, that was my interview with Robert Norlander, forensics expert and former special agent with the Internal Revenue Service. This interview was really interesting to me on several fronts. A couple of them that stick out are number one, just the early life experience that Robert had. His father was a CPA. He worked in that practice, learned it from the ground up a little bit there, got the feel for working directly with clients, and then became the youngest city councilman ever in their area. And that interested me as well. I did not see that coming in this interview. I knew he had spent over 20 years with the IRS, but I didn't know he was the youngest city councilman. So that was sort of interesting. And then secondly, if you would have asked me before this interview what being an agent with the IRS entails, I obviously would have thought about tax. I obviously would have thought about audits of tax returns, but I'm not sure I would have thought about just the justice aspect that Robert was talking about. In his career as a special agent in the criminal investigations area, he was able to shed light on situations that really needed some light shed on them. And I think there can be no argument that he made a difference in the world through his career there. And I'm not sure that's something that would have immediately come to mind had you asked me before this interview. So I learned a lot in this episode as well. This was educational on many fronts. And so, Robert, thank you very much for spending your time with us. Well, that wraps up another episode of Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers podcast. I know I mention this all the time, but seriously, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm very findable on LinkedIn. Just search for Mark Goldman CPA and I'll pop right up. Well, that wraps it up. Until next week, we'll see you soon. After all, this is Where Accountants Go. Where Accountants Go.